So today, I interview two friends of mine. They're artists who live in San Francisco, Levni Yelmos, a cartoonist, and Felix McNee, a painter. We talk about what it's like to survive in the city as an artist. We define art because why the hell not? We talk about art and artists that we love to hate. We discuss insecurity, envy, success, artistic process, and all the things that go with it. We discuss in great depth, Looney Tunes and the deeper meaning of Bugs Bunny. We sing. Anyway, before proceeding, you might want to check out their work so you can listen to everything kind of in context. Lev's website is www.talesofmereexistence.com, and you can check out his Patreon at www.patreon.com slash L-E-V-N-I-Y-I-L-M-A-Z. And Felix's work can be viewed at F-E-L-I-X-M-A-C-N-E-E.com. So go out there, check them out, become a patron of the arts, and enjoy this rather lovely and slightly chaotic episode of Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. Uh, Lev, is a, what are you? Lev? An animator and cartoonist. Felix, what are you? A painter. <laughs> what kind of painting do you do? Oil painting, figurative, landscape, abstract, hybrid type stuff. I think he was kind of like an improvement on Dolly. Well, I would, I would actually, you know, you see all those things you didn't say surreal, and I think a lot of your stuff is super surreal it's funny I've, I've always balked against the name surreal as applied to my work because i'm worried that it's to be put in that box the one objection i've had to surrealists as opposed to other types of artists it can be seen that they're illustrating an idea instead of making a something like the famous saying about illustration is about something painting is something you're talking about like magritte who does like the this is not a pipe right and they're great paintings but i think a lot of times the painting is in service of some psychological idea rather than the painting fully coming into being as a thing in itself. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why Felix is an artist. <laughs> <laughs> and Lev, what kind of cartoons do you make? Or animations? Well, I mean, both the anim animations and the cartoons, they're part of the same series, a series called Tales of Mere Existence. It kind of fluctuates what it's about, like, you know, from each piece. I mean, like a lot of times it's, it's me talking about either my anxieties, things that happened to me that just somehow seemed significant. Sometimes it goes into an area of, of social commentary. I usually seem to uh, get into this nebulous realm where people will say, like, you know, this is something that, that I think about and I didn't know anybody else did. And you also do a really interesting thing, like the figures are not moving per se. We were watching them being drawn. Yeah. It didn't actually occur to me. I watched your cartoons several times that they actually were not moving. It was like as though someone were drawing a, this is reductive, but a smiley face. Like you could see the two dots appear, then the mouth would appear. Well, that's, that is really all I do is draw smiley faces. <laughs> but in my brain, I'm like, oh, the, the, the smiley face is moving. It wasn't. It was just being created on the page. Did you make that up? Did you make that technique yeah, up? I actually, I got the idea from an old movie called The Mystery of Picasso, where you got to uh, watch Picasso's line coming together things coming together as it right. was happening okay so when i sat these guys down i said hey i'm gonna split the podcast into two pieces uh, questions of survival as an artist and then questions about process and both lev and felix prickled at that which i thought was fascinating so that the questions of survival seemed a little bit lame to them i think it's interesting because i think in san francisco in particular surviving as an artist is really really difficult especially nowadays i wouldn't say that the questions were lame i'd say that they were for me threatening 
Well, I mean, threatening. It can be difficult to. It can be a little difficult to talk about this. There's actually no shortage of little memes uh, flying around saying that, like, when you say you're an artist, and then like a, a, at a party, and like people almost invariably say something like, "Well, how do you make a living? Mm-hmm. Or right. what do you do for money?" Which is reasonable because, especially in San Francisco, it's it's a miracle to live here. And I realize I'm I'm a living miracle in that sense that, that I've been super fortunate. And I'll say that one of the um, sources of my perceived prickliness with that question, why I say it sounded threatening, is I do have uh, this entrenched superstition, which is actually common to a lot of cultures, the evil eye. When someone envies what you have, just by envying it and looking at you with their evil eye of envy, it all starts to fall apart. Then a lot of cultures have things that are supposed to defend against that. In fact, one of which is the eye. It's actually a defense against the evil eye. So Felix just illustrated an eye in the air with his fingers. It didn't look anything like an eye, it which is did. proof no. of what a good... Well, no, you're an excellent painter. <laughs> well, I mean, that the uh, another person who warded off the evil eye was uh, the metal singer Ronnie James Dio. And in doing so, warding off that evil eye, he did that, uh, that horn symbol that people make in their hands, the sort of universal heavy metal symbol. Uh, so can I ask Felix... How do you make an income with your art? Um, I always want to preface this with like, I'm so incredibly fortunate. And I hear myself doing that every time in it. But I stand by that. I am incredibly fortunate to be able to do what I do. I sell paintings. I have a, a number of buyers who are pretty dedicated. Some who've been buying stuff from me for probably at least 20 years. I really have a huge appreciation for these people because I know that what they're doing is not just a selfish act. Like 20 years ago, I was this kid in this little gallery called, I think it was called Figure 5 Gallery or Carmichael Gallery. Anyway, it was somewhere in the mission. And I had this tiny little painting and it was like, you know, 150 or 300 bucks or something. And this guy came in and bought it. And it's it feels incredible to feel that sense of support and the fact that someone will look at something you've done that has no intrinsic value and yet value it. And it's funny because, I mean, it does make you look at the properties of value and what is and is not inherent anyway. But there are certain things that remain true, like that uh, the amount of work that goes into something does generally increase its value. Yeah, for sure. Who uh, who else has bought your anyone anyone close to us that we know who has purchased one of your paintings? Oh well, one of my favorite collectors is a person in this very room actually who, who was just pointing at himself. <laughs> um, yes, I you have, can. I, just... have, I have one of Felix's paintings uh, in my living room. Uh, it's glorious. It's a it's a large. What would you call it? Looks like a big sort of it's tower a, of Babel. Yeah, with it's flying a tower. Fish. Yeah, it's a yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's very cool. Uh-huh. Uh, my patients love it. <laughs> oh, they do. Yeah. yeah, they do. You're about to have another of my paintings. Yeah, too. we're gonna yeah. put one right up in here. Yeah, Lev, how do you uh, make a living as an artist? One of the main things is so I have uh, used the site Patreon, which is kind of like an ongoing Kickstarter. And so like, you know, people will contribute monthly. That's been something that's truly saved my ass and kept the series going. So the Patreon's one thing, but also like that I've done a bunch of freelance projects, which I love doing. You know, I've, I've done some stuff for a lot of small businesses. I've made several music videos. One of them actually kind of recently just won, I think, second place in some film festival or something just like mm-hmm. about a month ago or something. And then like, those are a gas. I've done like a little bit of voice work too. So Lev has a lot of wonderful cartoons on YouTube that I will put many links to on this podcast. And have you found it like, I mean, as a, as a therapist, you know, my, my reputation is 
my income. Do the two of you, have you noticed uh, that you've been able to raise your rates and get more uh, customers and build things up? I mean, it's been, how long have you been a cartoonist, love? I think that things um, things really started to happen for me, like probably somewhere around in, in like in 2007 or something. That's when it started getting known outside of a very, very small circle. Great. Felix, you recently uh, had a switch of lifestyles that enabled you to yeah, paint Yeah, uh, for uh, uh, at least 10 years or something, I, I had a bit of a detour, which actually one of my friends and collectors really disliked that I did that because I was frankly on the cusp of really doing well in the art world. And I kind of like put it down and I've been ruminating on why I did put it down. There was a lot of answers, but I started playing music. The music has a, a different, almost diametrically opposed to what it is to be a painter. I'm alone in my studio for long periods of time, rarely see another person. Opposite is true in music. You're required to see people. You're required to collaborate and cooperate, and it's great for that reason. It was intoxicating, wonderful and positive. I met a bunch of great people. Thousands yeah. of people. <laughs> but at the same time, I was beginning to pick up some pretty bad habits and be untrue to myself. You know, there's so much alcohol in the music world, and it was kind of ruining me, among other things. So the pandemic occurred, shut all of that down. It was like having cold water splashed on my face. Suddenly I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I need to be doing. I need to be painting again. What, what the heck is going on? And I haven't looked back. So Felix, tell me a story about being an artist and finances and dealing with people in your realm. Well, as, as finances relate to anxiety and mere survival, one of my band leaders once asked me how much I'd pay for rent. and You were in a music band at the time. Yeah, I was a drummer. And I sort of was a little taken aback, and, and he was pretty insistent on hearing what I paid for rent. And basically, I was like, well, why do you need to know this personal information? And he's like, well, I need to know how much I need to pay you. And to me, I found that backwards. I'm like, no, you, you need to pay people because they're working, not because if someone needs X, that doesn't mean you pay them something just up to X. That's not how it works. At least that's how I, I sort of bristled a little at that. You ever notice how talking about income and numbers never leads anywhere good? No, it doesn't. I mean, with you talking with any artist, unless you're, we're talking about somebody who's like super successful, it does immediately lead to thinking about anxiety. One thing that I can tell you straight up, I think it's probably true for both of us, is that you know, you're talking about surviving as an artist in San Francisco. One of the biggest things that I think both of us have in our favor is we've both been in our apartments for one long ass time. Good old like, rent I control. I think that if I was wanted to move to the city and wanted to be an artist, no way. No way. No, no. way. Do you think it's possible that a lot of the artists that are in the city are folks that have been here for decades then and have planted their roots like in the 80s? I don't interact with enough people to know. <laughs> <laughs> I have a second great aunt who lives out by Golden Gate Park and she lives in like a three or four bedroom apartment. It's right across the street from the park. It's like twice the size of your place, Felix. Oh, wow. I mean, it's, it's got to be 3,000 square feet. It's just huge. I think she pays $800 a month <laughs> or something like that. One thing that it is kind of related, the way that a lot of my stuff looks, the simplicity of the animation and like, but one of the things that I really like to do, just kind of take whatever's around and be able to make something with it. And so that a lot of times it looks like kind of a joke to have something with such um, rudimentary production values. But this is actually, it's a conscious decision that I made years ago, which was, look, man, if I'm going to be stupid enough 
to be an artist, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'd better be smart enough to work cheaply. So that was that was a very conscious decision. How many hours a week do you think you work? Uh, does work include worrying, pacing, getting over a hangover, and beating my head against the wall? Yes. How about frittering, Dithering, procrastinating, frittering, yeah. procrastinating? I probably work about twenty hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> and how many hours are you actually sitting there, pen in hand, and or on the internet promoting stuff, doing things, putting it all together? Uh, probably like you know between like six and eight per day, something six like that. Six per day. Wow. Yeah. Something like that. The thing, though, is is that so much of art making, it's a psychological battle. And like that, a lot of it has been trying to make myself you know, do the things that I need to do and just to sort of get over like the anxiety, the fear of failure. But once you get past a lot of that stuff and you actually start to get into that meditative state where you're drawing or you're just sort of like thinking, it's almost like, you know, thinking in that stage between being asleep and awake when you can kind of like get into that mode and uh, then it's it's the best the zone yeah i guess we're talking about process now felix how many hours a week do you think you paint i mean every day i'm in the studio in there wrestling with myself as much as with paint at least eight hours a day my constant chide against myself is that it could be more and this is why i love hanging out with lev actually is because we do such different work but we i think encounter the same obstacles maybe in a similar way so i feel a kinship but we're also not kids anymore so that we do have the benefit of some wisdom of our years but it's humorous that despite all of that i keep tripping up on the same obstacles which are you know like looking at a canvas or a palette and going like how can i make something that's better than nothing even though intellectually i know good work comes from a lot of work every time i sit there and approach it or even like midway through a painting there are so many different ways to trip up over your own work Mm -hmm. where you've you've got something good and yet i know i have to keep going and in the w- the way that i really should keep going for the good of me and the work is to sort of stay unconscious stay free ask what the painting needs instead of what i need but i get caught up in like one successful step <laughs> then i like well i don't want to ruin that little success no matter how many times i tell myself and that i know intellectually that i just need to barrel through that particular wall i'm putting up i do stop in front of it every time and it is a very similar thing with a drawing i remember being in a drawing class years ago and like i had this one part of the drawing that i really really liked the uh, teacher like you know came over and was and it was like and he was just like giving me a little bit and i was like yeah yeah but i really like this part i really like this part and he just like said look sometimes you have to destroy the best part of the painting in order to get through it kill your darlings let's talk about obstacles for a minute obstacles are the blank canvas getting hung up on some part of a piece of art that you really like that you, you know you have to destroy it to move on to something better what are the kind of ego battles do you guys get into ego, what do you mean by ego battle winning losing is i'm going to be successful at this i'm going to i, I suppose fear you know the best art I think comes from a place of great depth where the, the realm of the ego is sort of doesn't really, it just doesn't really mm-hmm. exist as much. What happens is the ego worries about money. It worries about time. It worries about what our friends think. It worries about what the future is going to think of us. It worries about whether or not this is going to be good, whether or not this is going to be bad. You know, if I do this thing now, I'm not going to be able to spend two hours, you know, watching uh, that movie with my friend or my girlfriend, or I'm going to miss dinner. Or I'm going to miss this party or I'm not going to, I'm going to be alone. Those are all ego battles. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, I, no I, I think like one thing that's been hanging me up recently is just the mere question of, well, 
oh, am I even a good artist, which is a stupid question, because I know the answer, and the answer is it doesn't matter. Like, just make art. Don't ask whether you're a good artist or a bad artist. And as soon as you know the answer, you're, you're wrong. That's excellent. So as soon as you know whether or not you're a good or a bad artist, you are instantly wrong. I think so. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Wow, I don't know that one. Well, we, it is now written in stone yeah. or in, in, in digital. That's very quotable, Felix. No, thanks. Sort of connected also to the inexorable passage of getting older. You know, when I was a young artist, there was a bit of bravado, a brashness. I can take on the world, da, 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 da. And, you know, now I'm 52. The world hasn't taken much note whatsoever. <laughs> How that's good is that it's humbling in a good way. It doesn't matter. Keep making work. It was always just for whoever's looking at it, not some unknown panel of judges. What's the quote? There is no art, no more, no less than the art of artlessness. What's that from? I I don't know. Seymour would quote it. My old therapist would say it all the time. I don't know, some Greek fucker probably. Definitely, it's kind of an acrobatic thing to try to say. That's why, no, it sounds like it's a a song lyric from like Morrissey. (laughs) Maybe it is. But what I'm saying is there's kind of a paradox here. If you say your art is good or if you say it's bad, you're full of shit. It's like the story the story of the wise man. So if someone comes to the wise man and says, hey, are you the wise man? And he says, well, if I told you I was a wise man, I wouldn't be very wise, now would I? But if I told you I wasn't, I'd be a liar. So it's kind of like, you both are very good artists. I've seen your art. You're excellent at what you do, yet you can't say it because if you do, then you're not. Well, well, the the thing is, like I have an unholy terror of becoming arrogant. And this is actually something that that I can can really sort of struggle with is that I just sort of have this thing in the back of my head saying that like, you know, if if I, you know, even start to say, hey, man, I did that well, or if like, can I give myself the smallest pat of the back, I just sort of feel like that there's some sort of great big fist that's going to like, you know, knock me over and just like say, oh, yeah, you think you're so great? Well, you know go fuck you and like you know i'm gonna take you down now i I just i feel like that there's this thing that the second that i say something where is that like the knock wood thing when someone says something and they like knock wood it's something like that except i I would think think it's it's maybe it's a little bit more intense where do you think you get that idea from um you're the therapist you guess (laughs) well i mean i can tell you where seymour said the knocking wood thing came from i don't know if that's helpful he told me and maybe he was wrong that in the Russian mythologies, the really old, old, old ones, the, the idea was that if you if you bragged about something or if you said, hey, this thing is really good, the little the wood elves would hear you and they would say, aha, you think you have things so good? We're going to fuck it up for you. Mm-hmm. And then you'd knock on the wood to acknowledge, yeah, I hear you. I see that you're in there, wood elves, and I acknowledge that you're there and that you can fuck me over. So please be merciful. I just said that thing and it's all good. And what you're saying kind of reminds me of that if you say something good about yourself, that, and I, and I mean this academically, that God will hear you mm-hmm. and God will say, oh, really? Oh, really now, Lev? You think so? Mm-hmm. Watch me shit on your whole life. Is that kind of what? It, it's, th- it's something like that. How long have you thought like that? I think probably since I was a teenager. I mean, I, but I mean, it's also just because that I get irritated when I'm around really, when I'm around people who are just like, you know, talking about how great they are. I find it annoying. Ugh, yeah. And yeah. so that. Yeah. Um, well, don't hang out with me then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, because I, th- I think what you're identifying is that there's generally a correlation between bastards and people who think they're great. You don't want to fall into that 
category. There's another aspect of it, though, which is that if you get somebody who's like their confidence has moved over into arrogance, mm -hmm. then think that sometimes they just don't try as hard. They feel like that they shit masterpieces. And so well, what do you think about like, I mean, someone like Picasso, who I've heard one story after another about what an asshole he was. I have a theory with him, though, which is that that he was probably also doing enough work through sheer appetite. And I think that's the thing, the way that I would describe Picasso, a man of huge appetite so that it wasn't ego. Ego really doesn't have the stamina that other things have. And I, as purely academically, like that's God or like feeling the love of God is walking in the liminal space between your ego and all this other shit. And so you, you're walking this place and that's where creativity feels effortless but the trick is it's not effortless you have to fucking work to get there and i think picasso did that who knows what his motivations were before and after well because I, I see these movies and read these things like picasso and the other one um alcoholic consummate alcoholic and faulkner alcoholic i'm not saying he was a bad person i'm just saying you hear about all these these really maladaptive behaviors and then you see these geniuses that produce this stuff i guess i'm wondering like you two are two very socially well-adjusted pleasant human beings thanks what is it like to see someone who's a complete shithead be revered as a brilliant person does it piss you off or Lev, I said, ask a question again. Well, you said you don't like being around arrogant people. Yeah. And I guess my question is, what's it like being around a really arrogant person whose presence you cannot suffer, but who you know or who others know or believe is really quite brilliant as an artist? I would have to say it would depend on what I thought of their work. Okay. I think that if I saw it and I thought that they were really good, I would question things a little bit because that even though that like you know I might find them being kind of insufferable, uh -huh. I would start to wonder if there's like some sort of twist in there that uh, somebody who is extremely confident or whatever and is able to do really good work. I mean, there's part of me that would be envious of that. Okay. Felix, you want to? Oh, I'm, I find myself feeling envy all the time and I'm at a point where I'm just trying to admit it instead of pretend that that's not happening and hope that's more constructive. But I, my response to people who, uh, again, I'm not going to name names, but there's someone who I actually went to art school with mm -hmm. who is now massively successful, mm -hmm. massively successful. I never actually thought much of his paintings. And I honestly, I'm of two minds now. I think the paintings are impressive. And I, I think what he's done is pretty amazing but i also find myself picking the paintings apart and the, even the critique that i had of his work back in school when he was a nobody just like me they're the same like oh. he has no feel for paint itself it's just a means to an end he creates I, ideas not, not yeah, art yeah and okay. and right now i think they're also on a bit of a what's the uh, an assembly line like it's the same idea, yeah. And he it's just, he just found something that works. Yeah, and, and it's it and he does an incredible job. He's, he's like a printing press, yeah. essentially. And he also like doesn't paint all of his own paintings, you know. And that's actually, oh. but that's actually, <laughs> it's funny that I don't even know if that's a critique, but because he doesn't, I think it's a critique. Well, he doesn't actually claim that he does. Furthermore, that's actually an old tradition in well-known artists of the past, like Caravaggio or whatever. They yeah. would have 
assistants paint the backgrounds or whatever. Also, I think back then art wasn't looked at in such a fractured way as it is now. Maybe well, authorship wasn't as important. Yeah, and and you know it was like a big painting would be regarded the way we look at like a blockbuster movie, movie today. Yeah. You don't expect it to be made by one person. It's kind of absurd to think that it would be. Well, I knew a couple of sculptors mm -hmm. who were looking at the David. And they calculated that if Michelangelo alone had done it, it would have taken him something like 1,100 years. Yeah. <laughs> right, because just the surface area alone. Yeah, of, yeah. yeah, no, it's, you know, people have help. And, you know, we, we have help. It's called technology, too, you know? Like, I'm not making my own brushes, grinding mm. my own paint. Anyway, to get back to psychological honesty, I look at that, and it is me defensively tearing someone else down like oh he doesn't actually it might be true but what i'm really god this word has come up so much bristling at is the success or the audacity of someone else to go out and be successful when i didn't really try <laughs> <laughs> you, you know something that like when in that sort of mode though I'm, this is something that i'm like trying to get better at you know when i see somebody who is massively successful you know especially somebody that i know i've been doing my best to stop saying things like that oh you know that they um i'm really happy for their success and like you know that's really really great that they did that and i'm trying to be a little bit more honest and say you know something man i'm really fucking jealous even though that's one of those things where people say like you know that yeah but that's not going to help you and all this stuff it's just it is <laughs> got to if people did not express jealousy you wouldn't have any operas in the world say more about that <laughs> just, do you know where you're going with the opera thing because it's actually nope. quite true so opera was originally created my understanding is that it was created by incredibly wealthy people to show off their money so they would put together these really insane like huge sets all these things and that's why opera's never been profitable that's why the opera is always asking for money because no one's making any money because hmm. they're so expensive and they were supposed to be really over the top it was kind of like in the old days when you served people tea somebody somewhere's going to say this is not true but my understanding is that spice was so expensive it's like well we're so rich we can put this shit in water and drink it motherfucker and opera was like jealousy it was envy it was based on like i got more money than you do i can put on a bigger opera than you it's can. really yeah. strange that you mentioned this because like that just in the last couple of weeks i was watching this this 1971 series of documentaries from the bbc uh, mm -hmm. called ways of seeing by this guy john berger oh yeah that he was talking about like a, a lot of paintings that like you know that hang in the world's museums the thing is, is I always had this dumbass impression of, that art was like a higher level of consciousness and like, you know, it was like kind of bringing beauty and this was like the motivation. Then the way he was describing like so many paintings that are out there in the world is just was people getting their portraits done so that they could be immortal, so they could show off the house that they have, so they could show off their horses. Or like, you know, that they would have like, you know, this big painting of like, you know, their mistress so that like, you know, other people would come over and just like, you know, see, <laughs> check out this little <laughs> hot cake that I'm banging here. <laughs> right. And the compliment to that, I would say the modern era would be the reverse where an artist became so successful that they could almost demonstrate that by doing something idiotic and ridiculous think of the banana taped to the wall can you say what that is it's like some artist taped a banana to a wall of gallery and it sold for a million dollars and literally just a banana just a banana there's a, a lot of you know academic talk around that but but my <laughs> my suspicion is that it's an artist saying oh here's how successful i am i can do some stupid shit and get paid for it that's how powerful i am um i want to talk a little bit about 
um, why people hate artists because yeah, that's a good like reason. Art for art's sake, like mm. banana tape to wall. Uh, you know, Duchamp and his goddamn urinal mm-hmm. was it? This doesn't really happen in the cartoon world. Although I guess you have some really sort of lame street art out there that people say is art because it's on the street. And look at me, I'm super aesthetic and awesome because I painted Snoopy on a brick wall or something. But I mean, let me just define art as I see it, and then we're going to get into what I think art is not. Because I do not think a banana tape to a wall is art. Mm-hmm. I, I say mm-hmm. that definitively, and I stand by it. It might be comedy, social yeah. commentary, yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my um, definition of art, and this is what I talked about with Seymour, was that it's his exact phrasing was staining the archetype. It's like if you had like a watercolor brush and you stained a really sort of a perfect, beautiful, transparent archetypal image of say a bird or a shining star, that would be the archetype. It's, it's bringing it forth. So in my opinion, art is about bringing forth what is unconscious into the conscious world. For instance, I saw this one painting of these Chinese workers in a field and all these angels were up in the, I forget who the artist was, but they're all up there and the whole point of the painting according to the artist which i think was brilliant interpretation was that they were working really really hard and they were missing out on all the the higher learning and the 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 spiritual beauty because they were they were oppressed and they they couldn't it could engage because they're they're literally bent over and i thought that's so beautiful because that that's more than an idea it's it's bringing forth the archetype of hard work and of labor and of being you know i don't know why pablo picasso's guernica is so famous but it speaks to a lot of people i guess it was about the war and nowadays you know a really important movie will stir people star wars basically a western you know dark and light and all that stuff it's like a collective dream it's all these images that are down in the subconscious that we want access to we need them because they're healing and art says here here's this beautiful thing check it out you know lev you were talking about life in hell which was matt graining's thing before the Simpsons. Uh, Simpsons. I have a very distinct memory of one of those comics of people going to school. It was like a guy going to school. You go to school and you go to high school and he had some picture of some poor rabbit going to high school and then college. The next panel was grad school and the subtitle was some people never learn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I remember that comic because it really spoke to me because I was young then and I was worried about my own future. And that comic spoke to my unconscious, well, not that unconscious worries about what the fuck am I going to do when I'm mm-hmm. in my 20s and 30s? No one has given me any guidance. Uh, life in hell was a real help. And then, you know, I read a lot of Far Side, and I was, a lot of those comics really were helpful because they helped me figure out the world a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's my definition of art is the unconscious coming into the conscious realm. And so when I see something like a goddamn banana taped to a wall, I understand that it's a cute idea, but nothing's being healed. Nothing's being done. Nothing's being produced. Nobody's helped by that. Mm-hmm. And and fuck that. Yeah, I would say that it's, it's like a meta commentary on the brokenness of the world. It's like popping a zit on the face of <laughs> art. Okay. But- well, let's talk about what you guys think art is and what it is not. I mean, like Banksy with his weird shit with like you sell the art and then all of a sudden half of it gets shredded. Like, I don't know. What he's really doing, I think it's just he's making a commentary on like on the art world. I kind of get what he's doing. I'm just a little indifferent to the message, you know? That's what I mean. I don't feel like it has any impact and does not meet the threshold of art. It's interesting. I think a lot of his work does, though. I think For sure. a lot of his work is really powerful. Yeah. Right. I realize I'm saying his, too. And we, don't even we, know. we don't know. Did you see the one with when they shoot down Dumbo? What? It's a cartoon. Uh-huh. It's a couple of guys who are, they're screaming Allah Akbar, and they're doing their thing, and they're shooting at something in the sky. 
and suddenly boom in this you see this trail of smoke and they we got it we got it and they're saying it in arabic and this thing comes down and boom and it lands and it's dumbo they've shot down dumbo the elephant and i thought that was i don't even know what the message was but i just felt it was fucking brilliant because you know america versus the thing and like i don't know it was just Hmm. amazing it was it was a weird amazing i have i've not i've not seen this anyway we'll throw out some examples of art that you've seen that's been really impactful to the each of you and art that you've seen that's like no that's fucking ridiculous i remember having a people say this too much but it was like a religious experience in the tate i was an extremely impressionable 17 or 18 year old and walking around the Tate Gallery by myself. I'd never been to London before, much less this place, and walked into a room and bam! It was like suddenly this fucking presence was in the room. There's this scream of color coming from the wall, and it was three figures at the base of a crucifixion by um, Francis Bacon. His stuff is so punch in the gut, kind of strong in certain ways, but also formally beautiful in a lot of ways. And I think like he fits the bill for me also because he managed to fail a lot too. I think we got to remember to be a little generous <laughs> with people. When you call them an artist, remember that they're still a person too. So like some of his things were fantastic and some I think were just like, no, him repeating himself or doing something because he was an addicted gambler and he had sure. to do something about it. <laughs> um, but that just as a visceral experience, because walking around a museum, you see what you expect generally. Like, oh, a nice painting, nice painting, nice painting. Oh, interesting. Oh, this is, look at the technique. Oh, this really looks like a cat or this really looks like a this. And then I walked in and I was like, fuck, you can do that? That's possible? It felt shrine-like at the same time. It's not just like a place where you go to get out of the rain. painting like that at the MoMA. Mm-hmm. It's a Pollock. I didn't even know it was a Pollock. It's yeah, we called, saw that together, right? It's yeah. called, I forget what it's called. Excavation, I think. Is that? I think it is. Something, it was an excavation of the tomb or something like that. Anyway, it was just, it's an extraordinary work of art. And I remember walking in and going, but bam, like, wow. And I had no idea why I thought it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I was just, oh, it's a Pollock. And I suddenly felt really awesome and educated and erudite. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lev, do you have a favorite work of art out there? A few? I've got so many. I remember experiences of seeing some things for the first time. Like the first time that I got to see an Egon Schiele in person. He died really young, but he was a protege of Gustav Klimt. The Kiss. Yeah. yeah. And so you can see a lot of Klimt's influence, at least to a certain point. Right. You know, at first he kind of like started off as kind of a ripoff of Klimt. But then as he kind of went, you know, really like his drawings really were kind of a little demented looking, strangely vulnerable. A teacher of mine was saying that this is around when people were really talking about Freud, so that there's a lot of sexual confusion in them too. So I remember like really getting knocked out by that. I had a really fun conversation with you a couple months back about cartoons. Oh, yeah. And you changed the way I look at cartoons, like permanently. I know. I'm pretty sure I was fucked up. What did I say? We were talking about Bugs Bunny. And you were talking about the miracle that is Looney Tunes. And you were talking about, you love the the range of, because back in the, the, the cartoons were not as advanced and they didn't have the same tech, but they could draw really expressive faces. Mm -hmm. And you focused in one particular cartoon that had me laughing so hard, I nearly ran my car off the road. I think that in, in terms of this is something that I just I can geek out endlessly about. Ten bucks says that like the cartoon I was referring to either Duck 'em Up, which has brilliant expressions in it, or I was talking about this one called Bully for Bugs, where Bugs Bunny is is uh, in a bullfight. Yeah, why don't you talk about the bullfight one? Just walk us through the cartoon. Set the scene. 
we're, we're in an arena. Bugs Bunny is the matador. Or who is it? But he's yeah. the, he's yeah, the, the matador. Yeah, and Bugs Bunny's a matador. For whatever reason, he's done it again, and he's in the thing, and he's in there with the bull, and the bull is like, I'm going to get this rabbit. Mm-hmm. And at some at some point, what happens? And, and at some point, what ha- what happens is that uh, that the bull swallows a shotgun. <laughs> and the thing is, is that like, the shotgun winds up in in his tail, and so that when like, when he hits his tail on the ground, then like one of his horns turns into like the, a bullet will f- fire under the horns. And yeah. so when he first realizes what's going on, he looks really surprised. And then <laughs> like, you know, it's amazing that they could draw that. Right. That yeah. Was- but then, then like he, he hits the thing with his tail and then the thing fires out of his, um, out of his horn and he does it again. <laughs> and then he just kind of like, he has the, all I can say, like the, 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 the way that they drew the bull getting the idea, the, Hmm. <laughs> and then goes after goes after bugs which just starts shooting out of his horns yeah but the, th- the, so the thing though shotgun. is if you watch just to look at those expressions mm-hmm. and like you can just see the journey of how this bull's mind is working right and it's it's absolutely it's extraordinary to right. see that and it's not just extraordinary it's also so goddamn funny that's a great story, love. You were mentioning Life in Hell earlier. Yeah. And seeing those comics, I think I first saw that like in my 20s. My brother had the books. I think he left them at the house when he went off to college. And they just were, they were transcendent to me. Also, I, I was very much in tune with how much could be communicated with very, very few lines. Matt Groening was also really wonderful with expressions in Life and Hell with the rabbits in particular. But also, like, there are moments on The Simpsons, too, with facial expressions that are just they really are knock good. my socks off. Just a callback quickly to Looney Tunes. So Bugs Bunny is actually a mythic creature. He's a trickster figure. He's Br'er Rabbit, which comes straight out of Africa. The archetypal figure of the trickster is a shape-shifting, neutral character who's neither good nor evil, who kind of fucks everything up so that the world can sort of remake itself. Mm. And Bugs Bunny is often cross-dresses, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, changes shape, goes in disguise, mm-hmm. and is neither good nor evil and is straight out of those myths for sure. And so just talking about the unconscious coming conscious, and I think when people see that their trickster imagery is important to human beings, Felix is shaking his head. I'm literally thinking you when you said shapeshifter, one of my very favorite Bugs Bunny moments is the Bugs Bunny cartoon where he's fleeing uh, one of the giants, right? And he's in the giant's home and he keeps going away and the giant keeps like almost finding him and he he scrambles up onto the kitchen table for a second and in so doing, he knocks down a bottle. The giant kind of hears it and comes over and Bugs Bunny freezes, like swooshes himself into the shape of a A bottle, bottle. right? And the giant grabs him and a glass and he he tips (laughs) him over the glass and he goes, trickle. Trickle, trickle, trickle. <laughs> I don't remember this one at all, but I mean, you, you just reminded me that there was another one with it was both Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny. Elmer Fudd was the giant. Oh. And he was a great giant kind of like, you know, going like, and I'll grind their bones to, to make, make my blood. <laughs> if you look at some of the modern Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny, you know, post Mel Blanc, they're awful. They don't have the intellect. They don't have, mm-hmm. it's almost sacrilegious. It's like, I want to go incinerate them. 
I love most Bugs Bunny, but I think that when they were fresher, it was more connected to that architecture of the mind. And it's interesting because you mentioned him as the trickster, and it reminded me of one cartoon where the the trickster actually loses, which is usually not what happens. It's a cartoon where the main characters are actually Daffy Duck and Porky Pig, and they're together, and they're in this expensive hotel, and they've just racked up thousands of dollars of bills, and they're trying to just skip out. Mm -hmm. And then there's this huge Bluto-esque guy who's the manager of the hotel and he won't fall for any of their things. They've tried going out the window. They've tried knocking him down the stairs. They've tried going down the elevator when he's going up the elevator. They've tried pulling under the rug. Finally, in a tip of the hat to this whole thing, they're stuck in their room and they're like, oh my God, Bugs Bunny will know what to do. And they call him up on the phone and he's like, eh, well, did you try the go out the window thing? Uh Uh-huh. Did you try the go down the stairs thing? Did you try the uh, going up in the elevator while he's going down in the elevator? Did you try the rug thing? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And it pulls back from him and he's locked up in chains. He's like, doesn't work, does it? (laughs) 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 For those of you listening at home, I want to express my surprise that both of these gentlemen are very good at cartoon voices. (laughs) I think we should just have had a whole episode talking about cartoons. I had no idea. That's hilarious. Yeah, uh, I was just sort of wondering if you really where you want us to start. <laughs> Which was that? Who was that? I am evil, Homer. I am evil. <laughs> oh, <I'm sorry. laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> I'm a little out of practice with that one. Mm. I remember when I was a kid and Simpsons were getting really popular and people were starting to do copies of Bart Simpson. You could tell it was quite difficult to draw Bart Simpson for oh, some yeah. reason. Try drawing a Charlie Brown. It doesn't why, look. Why it is it? Doesn't okay, look artists. Like, let me yeah. ask you: Why is it difficult to draw? what appears to be a very simple line drawing character like what the fuck i think part of the issue is that there's a complexity hidden within the simplicity of of the lines there's Uh a rhythm it's essentially the body of the cartoonist and you have to inhabit that you know the speed of the line especially with say like charles schultz stuff because he actually drew in ink with a quill pen i think a lot of times so, yeah he did so there was like a lot of sensitivity of line there I that that, that looks easy see, right but that relates to like sumi ink uh, it's kind of like that, that story you've yeah. heard a, a kajillion times about the guy that commissions a artist to paint a fish you heard this one i know you have he he says hey can you i want to paint a fish and he says okay come back in a year and and so he comes back in a year and he says, okay, what's my fish? And he's like, oh, okay, he kind of brings out his thing and he paints him a fish. He says, that'll be, you know, 10 grand. He's like, that took you five minutes. Artist goes over and opens this thing and all these paintings of fish fall out because he's been working the whole time on how to draw a goddamn fish. Oh, I don't know this You one, don't know but, that story? But you know something, but I think I, I, I told you that one actually, yeah. yeah. I, I knew it before yeah. you told me, Felix. No, it I learned it as a this child. Is a, this is a contest a that I'm going to win. I, and I had the wisdom before <laughs> you. And I've... Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's just that I think that probably that there's something though that like when you try to draw another cartoonist's thing, I mean, like there's just simply like copying somebody's handwriting. It's really not that easy, but it's just that there's going to be a spirit that they're going to do this in because I mean they know the character better than you do yeah. and there's going to be like you know that whatever little click in their head of like you know the attitude okay I'm like you know I'm drawing Linus you know right now right. and, and so he's like when he's drawing Linus he understands Linus better than you do and so he's going to do it in a very particular and way and Linus and all these things again I'm going to wax philosophical here but it comes from a place of depth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so how do you imitate a place of depth like I think we both have some of the early books of the Charles Schultz draw- 
drawings. And what's fascinating is to look at his sketches, things yeah. that never made it to mm -hmm. um, publication. There was a lot of work there and there was a lot of discovery in getting to those characters. But you know what this is making me think of? I think sometimes artists do get boring or worse and that's something i'm afraid of actually they become orthodoxies of yeah, themselves like well garfield has become terrible and i think he doesn't actually draw the things anymore himself jim davis that's i didn't, what know, I, I didn't that's even what know you're still alive oh really have yeah you seen I, the, have you seen the garfield without garfield i was just about to mention it oh it's my god one of, would you care what? lev would you care to please tell, tell me what um, garfield without garfield is like that is some some really like forward thinking person <laughs> just like you took a whole bunch of garfield strips for those of you listening at home what what is garfield garfield's about a big fat cat and his yeah. owner john and yeah just, it loves uh, lasagna hates mondays garfield is this obnoxious cat his owner john is always trying to get him to like you know behave and and all of this and the owner john is also trying to have his own life mm -hmm. and then like garfield will you know mess stuff up or blah blah blah, blah. but somebody took the garfield out and just like made these strips of John is there alone <laughs> and talking and, and or like, you know, talking to himself. And it just becomes, it becomes the most, the most demented, sad, existential comic. Oh my God. And, yeah. And like that, um, and it's the thing about it is it's really addictive. I think Felix will have to, you'll have to look at it when you get home. Uh, yeah, you, you got to see this thing, man. Sounds like it's going to kill me. It, Dude, yeah, I remember it's, it, it's like, amazing. Just... It's just like a panel of him looking at the wall <laughs> and then another panel of him looking at the wall. Mm -hmm. And then the last panel of like, yeah, I do think Parcheesi is good. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> what the fuck? It's so weird. And he looks so lost and so lonely. Because the thing about Garfield is that there's something inherently lonely about John. And when you take Garfield out, he doesn't have his cat. And he is, his loneliness is so highlighted and so palpable. Yeah. It makes you, you know, want to ideate dark things. That was a good laugh. You guys are fun. Something else that like that I'd kind of like to talk about a little bit is when you're talking about like, you know, what art is and what it isn't and all of that. So often, especially if I get stuck, I try to think about just communicating and communicating with the work in one way or another. Sometimes I can look at it almost like it's kind of like a language. When you are, you know, learning how to draw, learning how to paint, whatever it is, it is kind of like learning a language, finding out what you're communicating to people. Do you know the sensation of like, you know, going out and talking to somebody and like you might talk and talk and you might be being a real pain in the ass because you just won't shut up and you're going blah, 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 and all that. But then still, when you walk away, you feel like you never actually got around to saying what was on your mind. And I felt like that so much. I felt like that I, I couldn't really verbally communicate what I really wanted to say right. so that you used art, artwork to, to actually do that. I don't mean to toot my own horn here, but that definitely meshes up with my original thesis about how art brings forth the, the thing that's beneath. And I was talking more on the collective level, but I think on the individual level, it's just it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Let's get into that. What kind of ideas as artists, what messages are you trying to bring to the world, if any? And, and if you don't know, that's fine, because sometimes it can be, as Felix was saying earlier, pretty artificial to say, well, I'm going to say, this is not a pipe, and, and I'm going to you know, draw a picture of a picture of a picture. Like, So I'm going to start with you, Lev. 
what's your message? I mean, if I if I really have any sort of message, I mean, and I don't really, I don't a hundred percent know if I do. Or actually, this is another area where I think that I can be hesitant to talk about it because when you kind of set out, like you know, with if, if an artist goes off, like you know, with like a mission statement or something. I just mean any message that you've ever had. What's an idea that you wanted to get across with a cartoon? One thing that I've definitely done is that when dealing with like, you know, my own demons, my own demons, my own like, you know, anxiety and depression, dealing with with any and all of that stuff, I just kind of wanted to present it in a playful way. Because I mean, it really can be like, you know, some of these dark feelings can be very, very funny. I just wanted to present it in that way, just as uh, like almost like personal therapy for me. So uh-huh. I can have a laugh at myself, and then it's a little bit more deal withable. Then also um, put it out there and hope that other people might find it helpful too. Any particular thing that you laugh at yourself about? I mean, I think that I'm just uh, particularly thinking about some of the videos that I've done, like that have been like, you know, about depression or, um, you know, I'm probably best known for that, for this one that's about procrastination. That's been seen by more people than anything else I've ever done. How many people? Last time I checked it, I think it's somewhere around 4.5 million. Wow. Something like that. Congratulations. Yeah. I want to make a, a point here. What I noticed it is it took me three or four passes to get you to articulate the, what the message is. In other words, it, you're, you're a cartoonist and your way of, of speaking these things is maybe through that medium. And you, it seems like, in other words, I had to ask it several times to get it out of you, which I respect because you know that, that's your medium. You're, my medium is to open my big fat fucking mouth all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's probably why I turned to cartooning because there's a, you know, there's a lot of things that are difficult for me to say, difficult to talk about, or you know that I can just start going, um, uh, the like you know so much that like you know that the whoever I'm talking to is just desperate to get the fuck away from me so they can go have a drink. Lev, what is it like to know that 4.5 and probably uh, all told, probably all of your artwork has probably reached in the tens of millions of minds. What is it like to know that that you've entered the brains of that many people? This is uh, goes a little bit back to the unholy terror of becoming arrogant because I don't really think about it very much. Think about it right now, just for me. <laughs> Dance, motherfucker. <laughs> um, wow, man. <laughs> Yo, it's amazing. <laughs> I think that I'm definitely doing this and this is just this is my own mental blockage is that it's one of those things that that I kind of know. I know consciously, mm-hmm. but I don't think I internalize it. And do you think that's because you're worried about being arrogant or because you're worried about owning your own power? Um or is that a false dichotomy? No, nah, it's a, yeah, that's that doesn't really sound right. Okay. Um, What's it like knowing it? Um, I think that the only thing that really comes up is just how much, like, you know, my my head will dodge the subject. But, like, you know, the fact that it's doing that, that's probably where more artwork comes from. Okay. <laughs> I would love to see a cartoon about this one question. Hmm. Could you do it? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just thought I'd tweak you a little bit there, but I think that would be a really interesting paradoxical cartoon for you to do. I'm going to leave you alone. <laughs> okay. uh, F- Felix. What's your message for the world? <sighs> I mean, I would say the the message changes, and maybe that's why it's a difficult question. And I hope you know, Lev, that this is an indicator of how much affection I have for you. But I had to stop myself from trying to, quote unquote, helpfully jump in. I wanted to throw a bunch of supportive stuff <laughs> your way, like that people mirroring your emotions and not even, you know, resonating with them is probably a reinforcement of the message that maybe you think you're screaming into the void and you find out that you're not. 
not, and that's an amazing thing. But anyway, but that's not that's avoiding my own question here. <laughs> so at least I know that you've both done that successfully. Yeah. Um, today. Internally, I think if you could call it a message, it changes. What I'm trying to do is get the thing to communicate with me, I guess, or to in some sort of way, like. I, f- I feel like I'm trying to build something that's viable in the universe because of a sense of beauty or the other way around. It's like an organism that will survive if it has, you know, certain properties that are strong and resilient. And I think I'm constantly wondering which is the beginning step, whether the thing is resilient and then it's beautiful or if beauty leads to resilience. You know, it's that's all sounds very highfalutin. Can I talk about the messages that I get from your work? Sure. And this is not meant to say that this is what your work is doing. Okay. Okay. My favorite aspect of Felix's work is when the objects in your painting seem to have an internal logic all their own. This actually harkens back to a Far Side cartoon that Gary Larson did years ago that confused everybody, and it was called Cow Tools. And it's this picture of this cow, and it's got a workbench in front of it, and there's these tools that don't make any sense at all. It's these it's these weird looking tools that look somehow cowish. And I remember seeing the cartoon and getting it immediately and thinking that's really funny, but everybody else apparently didn't think it was that funny because they didn't understand what it was doing, but it has its own cohesive internal weird abstract logic, cow tools. Because what the fuck does a cow need tools for anyway? So I feel like when I look at your work, like there'll be For example, he will do a picture of a temple and the top of the temple will have smoke coming out of it and the bottom there'll be fire. It's like something is being built within the temple and over to the side there'll be like a broken wagon wheel as though work is being done of some kind and that there'll be a cohesion, there'll be a poetic logic to that or there will be other mechanisms like you did one that was really gorgeous of, what was the thing that signals ships? Oh yeah. What's uh, that called? Semaphore. Uh, Semaphore. So it was this, it was this marvelous painting of a a beachfront with this contraption where they would raise and lower flags to to speak to ships you know many miles away back in the day and so the, the the thing is that you could really you had a really good sense of the distance in the painting and it was like you could feel the energy of that object maybe it was because i knew it was what it was supposed to do but it, it looked like it was communicating with the the things in the distance and you could feel that energy of like of like hey <laughs> and that's sort of one branch of what i get from your work and there's really these really weird cool twisty looking trees that are just that i think express the archetypal nature of a tree in other words i feel like your paintings of trees are more tree-like than trees <laughs> like you are capturing the soul of the tree what i get from your work is that when you paint an object you capture the object better than the object captures itself you capture its its mission as a thing now the other thing that you do that i don't like as much you'll suddenly interrupt the painting and you'll put something blotchy on it. He's nodding folks because we've had conversations about this and and it's a style of work that I think is awesome. I just doesn't, it's not for me or he'll do a portrait where someone's face is kind of twisted. And, and, and that I don't really understand. You said, but Ben, I, I want to remind people that this is a painting that it's not just a, like a photograph or it's like, like I want to remind people that there's a surface there, which I think is a cool. I think you, the word you used interruption was actually really good. Maybe I'll, I'll adopt that myself because uh, because I think that hmm, like I don't want something to be reduced to a description or a mm-hmm. likeness. Yeah, because I find that 
to be a, a reduction. Yeah. And the interruptions that happen, I think I'm trying to interrupt your process of being comfortable with that as a description. And it works on you, but it doesn't work for you. Yeah, it does work on me. I don't yeah. like it. But yeah. the thing is that it's it's doing a thing to me, mm-hmm. which I respect. Yeah. I will say, though, uh, and Seymour, he, he had this thing. He'd always talk about what it meant to shake the dew off the roses. Because if you think about a rose with dew on it, a rose with dew on it is totally different than a rose without dew on it even though it's almost exactly the same, right? Like if you take the dew off the rose, you have a much, you have a reduced image. And so his whole thing was don't shake the dew off the roses. And I think that a lot of art is about adding that extra layer of translucence to things that is impossible to define, Hmm. but when it's gone, you know it. Mm-hmm. You end up with a, like a, a Kincaid painting that's really kind of blame right. and flat and kind yeah. of like, oh, we're at Christmas. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be fancy. Like it, be fancy. I, but what I mean is like in a painting, I'm not trying to be fancy. What I'm actually going for is like an impact that isn't captured by words or descriptions. And like I remember looking at one of my very, very favorite painters of all time is Velasquez. He has a, this one famous portrait of his valet the guy who just helped him with day-to-day stuff and it's just fucking astonishingly good and there's a presence there Mm -hmm. and it's arresting and it's immediate but it's not as descriptive as a photograph like i think that some paintings did this for me where they looked more like a person than a photograph of even though they're both flat images and it wasn't all about lighting and shade but there was a volumetric thing there psychologically or in terms of soul i'm like ah Oh, like to be struck by this, the thingness of it there. And I want to admit my shortcomings there. I would love to be able to do that with more successfully descriptive technique as well, Mm -hmm. because that's what Velasquez was doing. That was the language of painting at that time. Is it fair to say that if we can describe what a painting is doing, that the painting has failed? (sighs) I could say, yeah, that the painting is just an illustration. Yeah, because Maybe. the job of a work of art is to go to the place that the, the language cannot reach. Mm-hmm. I would, would you agree, Liv? Okay. Um, I think it's very closely related to that making art because I have a hard time describing what's on my mind. Of, I remember having this, you know, uh, people over over my apartment, and like this is a relevant point, like you know, regardless of what anybody thinks about Johnny Depp these days. But they were talking about how you know, yeah, Johnny Depp's a good actor, but like then you listen to him like in, get interviewed, and like he just seems like such an idiot or whatever. <laughs> and like I thought about that a lot in in regards to this thing, like you know, that this exact same thing that just there are some people who don't communicate as well verbally yeah, when they're talking that's and true. they have to they have to find another way to communicate yeah when he was really really focused on being an actor mm-hmm. like you know a lot of the like the movies that he like did in the 90s though he was really good he yeah. was a very good like he wasn't just a personality wasn't a celebrity yeah. he was an actor and but yeah just don't think that he communicated that well verbally and yeah. so that's why he was like, probably a shitty interview fair enough yeah Things I was going to ask about hockey. <laughs> 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 
I fucking love no, them. No, no. <laughs> I fucking love the Muppets, man. Oh man. Uh, let's let's stop talking about art and just talk about shit from it. Um yeah. Did you see the the Muppet bloopers? Did I send that to you? Felix? Muppet bloopers? Yeah, there's <gasps> one with Robin Williams and Elmo. Oh my god, I'm and I think need to that see that. Elmo accidentally calls Robin Williams Mr. Robinson. <laughs> and and it goes like it's something like He's he's giving Elmo a stick and he, he says, Thank you, Mr. Robinson. And he goes, Mr. Robinson, let me take that stick back. And Elmo does this thing and he kind of he sinks down into the, whatever he sinks and his eyes come up and he says, I only had three lines. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really funny. It's really, really funny. And there's another one where there's I forget who it is. I think it's the woman from Cheers. She's on there and she forgets her line. She says, Shit. And the Muppets go, Five I guess we all enjoy doing the voices thing. Yeah. All three of us. I do a good SpongeBob where I used to. Can you, I don't know SpongeBob. Oh, hey, hey, Patrick. Do you, do you want to come over here and uh, play some SpongeBob ball? You know, that's really good. And I don't even know if it's accurate. It's, it's, yep. it's mild. Uh, Felix does a, a particularly good job with it. With this sort of wavering voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm do you know cheerful, I, but I'm kind of you know unsure. What, you know what I've got in my brain? So I didn't, I didn't have much of a father. And I can say that because he's dead and won't hurt his feelings. At least I don't think so. Mm. So I listened to tons and tons of Bill Cosby. And I am so upset about what that man became. Mm. Because I wonder if I could sit on stage and recite Bill Cosby word for word for like a good hour. Mm. Like I've got it all memorized. It's crazy. Because he was my one of my father figures. And so I can do the Bill Cosby voice. I can do Fed Albert. You know who Fed Albert was? Hey, hey, hey. Like, I can do wait, all that shit. Wait, Bill Cosby was the voice of Fat Albert? I mean, I know that sounds You're crazy. You're 52 years I old. Know. You're supposed to know that. Well, I don't know if Felix does, but SpongeBob sure does. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We're getting silly. You know, you know, Felix, that voice that you're doing, it actually has a little bit in common. The wavering part with Hans Molman. Who? Hans Molman from The Simpsons. I don't remember who Hans Molman is. He's, he's a very meek old man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember. My favorite one was Abu from the guy who ran the uh, 7-Eleven. The Quickie the Mart. Convenience store? Yeah, the, um, Quickie, the Mart. Quickie Mart. It's actually Apu. Uh, oops. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm going to get canceled. You, you dead man. <laughs> <gonna. laughs> Yeah, I, I I really wish I could do that accent. But the thing about those accents, if you don't get them perfect, you're an asshole. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying actually that's true about a lot of things, and it you know it relates back to art. You do a good job, it's forgiven. But if you like, if you're kind of shitty, it's yeah, you've dug your own grave. I got a question about art. How do you know when something's? This is every artist I write gets asked this fucking question, but I'm gonna fucking ask. How it. do you know when something's right in the middle? How do you know when it's done? How do you know when something? <laughs> How come nobody put- asks you? How do you know when your it's art is equidistant between finished and not finished? <laughs> started? Well, because I'm halfway through the painting, and well, excuse me, I, I paint from the. Do you paint from the bottom up, from left to right, Felix? I'm only from the left to right, oh. I'm like a real man. But do you ever who get puffs on a pipe? <laughs> oh, my grandfather would paint from one corner to the other diagonally. He was one of the post, 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 post modernists. Yes, sounds like a real. I don't even know what this communist. voice is supposed to be. Yeah. 
know. <laughs> I'm going to lose friends from this accent, which has no origin. I think that accent, you're okay with that one. That you're just what is you're it? You're just lampooning. I don't even. An I'm extremely average British, upper class British, but somebody who's someone who's speaking in a way that they're trying desperately to make it sound important. Very important. I had one woman. I was speaking to her quite like this, and she said, "You know, when you speak like that, you sound like a gay aristocrat." I was like, "Okay, I'm never doing that again." Maybe you are a gay aristocrat. But I just felt like such an asshole because here was this person from London Mm -hmm. who was really like, "You're an idiot," and I'm like, "You're right. I'm kind of an idiot." It is kind of a thing that no americans can do a good british accent it's i don't know this, why no that that yeah. um that's not true felix that that really isn't true that um that's wrong well i sit corrected i'm forgetting his name but i mean the, the guy who played the manager in this is spinal tap uh-huh. said that like when he got on the set and met uh, michael mckean harry Shearer, and um and now i'm forgetting um god damn it. wow is your head empty for those of you listening at home, he's knocking on his own head, and that's how much sound it made. Wow. Why, I, my, yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm forgetting wow. the name of it. But anyway, don't but become he was a cartoonist, that, folks. This I, is I, what's going to happen to your yeah. head. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. But a lot of it was um, was uh, uh, self-administered. I'm, I'm surprised when English actors do American accents. I don't know if you guys have seen the show Stranger Things. Oh, sure. But mm. the lead girl is i don't know if she's i think she's british or uh, she's from the uk or one of those places but yeah she's straight up not american did i ever tell you about tigran no so tigran uh, wherever you are if you're listening is hi. he a chess player yeah he's an amazing chess. he was he basically he <laughs> anyone named tigran was, has a chance so of i being, met so i yeah. met i met tigran in my college years in a cafe and i was pathologically arrogant back then so i'm like not as bad now and i would go to these cafes and because it it doesn't take much to become pretty good at chess you know in like a month i could teach pretty much anybody to beat say 70 percent of the people they ever played again in their lives it's not that difficult and so i would go to cafes and terrorize there was always a there's usually there was more chess scenes back then i guess the internet wasn't as prevalent and so i would go to i'd find a cafe and i would terrorize all the chess players at the cafe by beating the crap out of everybody right it was, i was like a, a medium-sized fish in a you know a very small pond type thing anyway and it was a social thing and so i was there and i'd make little stupid comments and what i really needed to do was go to the cafe up the street where all the real chess players were that could kick my ass 10 10 games to zero <laughs> so i went to this cafe it was cafe durant and the owner hated me so much that so i was sitting there and one day this why Russian, did he hate you what why why did he yeah, hate because yeah, he was a chess player and i would make pithy comments about his games and i would beat the crap out of him and all of his friends Mm-hmm. like every single time and so i was a dick and there was nothing they could say about it because i would win it was a, a stupid power thing i was dumb and young so one day this russian guy comes up he says do you want to play i'm like all right and he sits down and fucking creams me and we play again and he creams me again and i'm like so what's the deal like, oh the, the owner said i get two free coffees if i beat you <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, all right so we became we then and then the, pro, the thing the problem was is then I, we became friends and he started to teach me i asked him i was like so tigran why did you start teaching me chases well you know i i, I took pity i saw this poor jew <laughs> with, with, you know making random moves on board and i decide i will help him i will help him overcome you know he's he's only half jew and this is not his it's not his fault <laughs> he will he will overcome his anyway so <laughs> yeah that's my my russian accent story the little thing that uh, that really leapt out about the was when you said help i mean it's something i don't know if i could help 
you see that, that little that tiny little roll you were able to put on the the, the h was, uh, that i was uh, have you heard jumped out as being there's good. there's a story i'm talking a lot but there's a story it's on it's a, a comedian comes on joe rogan and tells the story about how he goes to russia Oh yeah, the uh, the the machine. The machine yeah. story. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, go to Joe Rogan. Like Google Joe Rogan comedy. The machine. It's this comedian called Bert Kreischer. All this stuff is making me. I know that it looks like you want to wrap up, but now I I have one little bee in my bonnet, and I want to talk about the cliche of the artist as pacifist, weakling outcast because well and it's it's in my mind today especially because today i took a gun safety course oh yeah that's right you sent me that picture of all the bullets that you shot and uh i shot (laughs) a glock 19 for the first time ever and it was terrifying but i'm a good shot actually yeah yeah you were were all in the damn bills i yeah i hope i'm i hope you never try to shoot me because you'll probably kill me curious curious uh, what the distance was it was pretty close i think i think he the instructor was being nice (laughs) but i wanted to to talk about that there may be cliches of artistness. We covered one that's a cliche for a reason, the artist as struggling person financially. The other cliche is wilting flower, you know? I don't think that's actually one grounded in reality. Well, I mean, look yeah. at fucking Hemingway. Yeah. Yeah, that Motherfucker guy- blew his head off with a shotgun, messed around with bullfighting, and I mean, he was- yeah. That's- compensation for something when but it goes anybody that who far, acts like a big tough guy is compensating for something right maybe you're objecting to the persona that of that artists may carry around with them because i i don't i don't know lev why don't you respond well i mean first off like that, that a lot of hemingway i mean i think that he was indeed a sportsman but i mean having it wasn't really like an accident they put that down as like in a part of his image i mean like that i think That's a lot true. of that was probably pure PR. PR. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was P- PR. It was marketing. Right along with, though, who's um, the guy in Sonoma County? Who's the, what's his name? Wrote, like, White Fang. And, oh, Jack London? Jack London. Yeah. yeah. He was known as kind of a swashbuckler. Right. Too. I think that what you're what you're talking about, though, is just that, that there is an, a, a bit of an impression that, that to be an artist means, like, you're an absolute wussorama, which I... Um, <laughs> I think people believe that because um, possibly because people will like tape bananas to walls and get away with it. And yeah. They just want something else to cut them up about. Yeah, maybe maybe it's that artists be, like escaped to art because of being socially excluded or, or being a bullied or a pariah in some way. And you got to be pretty know. tough to to do what the two of you have done. I mean, you're both really tough humans. Um, it's, you know, so when 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 you say tough, I would uh, perhaps I would perhaps like you know that alter that to resilient, maybe. Or I mean, I guess that is sort of a. Um, I, I don't know what the difference between resilient and tough is. Okay. I, I mean, you are definitely resilient. I see tough as being able to. I think resilient means you can take a hit and keep going, and I guess maybe tough means more like you can take a hit hit and keep swinging. Hmm. I'm just making. Okay, that. I don't really actually know the difference. In I don't know. I think of the difference as like tough would be a dead tree stump, and resilient is but, like but a like, live. Like what bamboo. I'm saying is like you, yeah. toughness to me is mm-hmm. like when I look at someone, and that's not somebody I'd want to get into a fight with. That's not somebody that I would want to cross because that person is tough. That person will. I I, I just like you are not two dudes that I would ever want to tangle with. <laughs> 
<laughs> ever because well you're never gonna have to worry about because the that. thing is yeah. like but no but yeah. it's, I, I feel like you do something like pull out a monkey wrench or like you, you you'd find a way my sense is that the, the two of you carry enough aura of like a little bit danger like like you look like tough grown men to me that's all i'm saying both of you very much and i think part of that is the fact that you've spent years being resilient and developing yourselves and being i think real artists are developing themselves as people mm. and and i i don't know why people think of our artists as wafy it's stupid i was thinking about the relationship between i think people look at us with some envy sometimes and i don't get that it's like oh you get to do what you want all day and I go back like, well, the only reason that is is because I made that choice a long time ago and I kept going for it even when it wasn't rewarding me, you know? That's a that's a good way of putting it. You know, and admittedly got really lucky many times to have that still work out. But you make a choice, not everyone has How's the same How is this related number. to the perception of the Well, artist? because it goes hand in hand that there's this sort of like, Oh, you just had things handed to you. Oh, you couldn't handle this other oh. thing if you tried. Or, or oh, you're a bleeding heart liberal and I know exactly what you think. Or, oh, oh you, you wouldn't. You're like, and, you're and like and Virginia like, Woolf's Room of Her Own with like, you know, all you need is 60 pounds a month in a room of your own right. and a rich aunt somewhere in, in right. Belize or something like that. Oh, I see what you mean. It's a lot of times, actually, artists were thinking a lot about where we are on mass as well as individually I, I think i began looking at the world and like you know it's dumb not to have a working knowledge of a gun nowadays even if i don't want one i've thought the same thing yeah. love do do you shoot i've it goes like this is that like uh um i've never gotten a proper gun license i mean i'm seriously considering it um mm -hmm. that i've uh, kind of been practicing though for for ages because i mean i've got some um i've got some air guns um, I just wanted to have like, you know, sort of a basic understanding. You know what we should do? We should do like uh artists go shooting day. <laughs> like seriously, like get, get a bunch of, uh, of poets and, and, and painters and shit together and go to the range and just shoot and like shoot bottles. Or I wonder like who would be like, who would be <laughs> good at like, at, who would be club? the most, have the best marksmanship. I wonder. I don't know. Probably yeah. Imogene. Yeah, that's Felix's uh, fiance. Yeah, or maybe I was just wanting to shoehorn that in because I'm still. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a. I mean, the, yeah, the perception of the persona of the artist is annoying. The other thing is, is that nobody knows who the artists really are, and a lot of times, here's another thing. I'm going to wax psychological here. So there's this thing called histrionicism, hist the histrionic. So histrionic person is someone who likes to be the center of attention. They wear bright clothes. They're pretty expressive with their bodies. They want attention, negative or positive. They exaggerate. They have sort of a false exaggeration of emotions. They're like the social butterflies. And they're like, oh my god, this is so made that. Okay. Now the thing is, is that those people get the most press and a lot of those motherfuckers are artists or like to say they are. And so they go around saying, I'm an artist. Look at me. Bleh, and they've, they're gross. And I just think that a lot of artists, you know, the old thing from the Tao Te Ching, those who say, do not know those who know, do not say, I think the vast majority of artists who are don't, don't just don't say shit. I don't think people know who the artists are. You know that I actually, I do have a, I do have a thought to add, well, you said that thing about like, you know, nobody knows who the artist is. There's another side of this is due to when my stuff goes and like, you know, waves of popularity or whatever. I did discover that like, you know, if I'm if I'm out and like, you know, that somebody says hello and anything like that, they don't know who you are. But I mean, like that they think that they do. 
and this really weird thing that can happen, I started to think that like people have like, you know, maybe they've got like maybe about 10% of the picture, but if they like your work, they're going to fill in a lot of that. They're going to fill in a lot of that, like that whether the, if they like you or they don't like I you, see, yeah. they're going to make an awful lot of assumptions. It can be like a peculiar thing, like you know when you're when you're meeting people because you don't know if you're uh, desperately disappointing them. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. That's a good point. Yeah, that must be weird. Like if to be a super famous artist and have people meet you and be confused by what they see. I've only, like, of course, super famous I am not. I think that I've had a glimpse into it. Yeah. And, like, you know, I've given, I've given it a lot of thought. Just because this is the sort of thing that in- interests me a great deal. Yeah. Um, is like that uh, that impressions and like you know the whole the whole psychological thing that will go along yeah. with this and i also I mean like you know the whole the people will very often say that like you know wow this person was just like seemed to have the world on a platter like you know why did they get into like you know drugs and alcohol and all that? <laughs> was there the whole time what's that it was there the whole time no this is what i'm thinking what are you thinking? I'm thinking that like a lot of people, I do think like, you know, that they, they will get into it like um, uh, music or art or whatever, because there can be like, you know, some some insecurity in there. And they're just sort of thinking that, wow, man, like, you know, if I become famous, it's going to make me feel better. Uh-huh. You know, that I'll be able to get oh, like, okay. you know, the sort of reinforcement that I've always craved. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't have to be like, you know, art. It can actually be like, you know, some sort of like like a vlogger or whatever, or people like, you know, making videos on TikTok, whatever. Right. But I mean that uh, a lot of people like might, they might achieve some fame, some notoriety or whatever, especially with like, you know, the people they'll meet, like they'll discover really pretty quickly. It's not going to like, you know, um, fill you up, you know, it's not going to fill up, fill so you up, whatever, drugs, whatever yeah. vacuum there was. And they probably wouldn't even necessarily understand it. They'd be kind of like, wow, I'm famous. Why do I still feel weird or whatever? Yeah. And then like that people wanting to hang around with you, yeah. hang around with you are probably going to bring you a pretty good quality of drugs. And so that you, oh. once you start down that road, you know, that um, interesting. I had not thought about that. that you know, that's, th- this is, this is my theory of like, you know, why it happens. Um, it can, it can grip people so so profoundly i had never thought about that angle that sounds great that's that is sad and profound so uh lev and felix uh thank you guys so much for coming in uh that was really cool and uh if you guys want to come back either one of you or both of you you are more than welcome and come play with the weird fidget spinners on my table well, right now I'm just I'm I've in my hand right now I've got like this uh, this stack of kind of like stone shaped yeah. magnets and that's what you're hearing. You here. you Lev, you may keep those if you like. Oh no, that's okay. Really? That, uh, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm desperately trying to get rid of things in my place and so oh, you are acquire, okay. acquire other ones. Yeah. I, I, okay, All right. but Ben is the king of beautiful small objects made out of metal. Fidget spinners, like, like the original ones, the real ones. I've really? never played with feel, one of these feel, things. Feel that. Oh, wow. The spin of it. Give him the black one. Holy shit. This is like a perpetual motion Where's machine. Where's the black one? It's over, probably over under your shirt there. No, it's right here. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, try the black yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah that they're, one, they're that just, one is like. This is incredible. Yeah. Just try the black one. I'm telling you, it's like, it's like smoking a crack pipe. And, he, to, and later he found himself upon Skid Row. This is incredible. This thing I'll do here. anything for spin, another spin. I'm telling you, Lev. Spin, the black, spin the black one. That, spin the black one. Spin, spin the it. black one. Oh. Now go like this. Gyroscopic. Isn't that amazing? Oh. <laughs> Fun with fidget spinners. So is this yeah. thing a fidget spinner? Yeah. 
Okay, you know, for some reason, I, I the, thought that, that, that those things, you squeeze them and they continue to... Get, here, try this Try this one here. It's not as spinny, but it's it's kind of weird. It's from China. It really makes it... It's pleasing. It's pleasing. It's Like spinny, you can just move it a little bit. I can move it a little bit. Like click, click, click. Like, but it yeah. stops really quickly. And no, but just like you just... They, they, they just move it slowly. Like ding, ding. No, like, like, like just go like this. Like, like you're... Like feel it. It's kind of cool. Doing like a... Like, like, like move it combine like, like move slowly. it two degrees like move it very slowly like very slowly that's very fast <laughs> when, when you're talking about moving it very slowly yeah like that like that just feel it how it's got that really neat feel to it and then the center kind of pushes in and out so you, the yin yang sign you can if you push down on it it moves uh, in and out yeah it's very soothing isn't it <laughs> I like this <laughs> oh, the sound of this Anyway, this is a very interesting way to end the podcast. We're just playing fun with fidget spinners. Fun with fidget, fidget spinners. Okay, guys, we're gonna end. Uh, thank you very much. Absolutely. Say, thank you. Bye. 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 Bye, y'all. Thanks for talking. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, relevant information regarding this podcast will be in the program notes. Links to Lev's work, his Patreon. Links to Felix McNee's work. And uh, we're gonna get him to put up a Patreon, but he hasn't. Why, Felix? Why? So that's it. Please go out there and become a patron of the arts. Support these folks. Support all the folks. Go to the museums. Go to the things. Go to the galleries. Go to the openings. Be part of the scene, man. All right. Have a nice day.